Hello, and welcome to the podcast, A Very Brief Introduction to the British Empire. This podcast is run by Uncomfortable Oxford, a student-led social enterprise. My name is Paula Larson. I'm co-founder and co-director, and also a doctoral student at the university studying the history of medicine. And my name is Olivia Durand. I'm also a doctoral student at the University of Oxford, and I study global and imperial history. Today's speaker is Sean Phillips, who's one of our fellow trainee historians, and Shantam's research is very much interested in the Pacific Ocean and the development of a pan-Pacific idea across the British dominions in the early 20th century. And Sean today will give us our third lecture in the first module of our lecture series on the Pacific Ocean. So welcome, Sean. Hi, Paula. Hi, Olivia. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to join you today. So have you explain a little bit to your audience um, what you study? Sure. So um, the thesis that I'm working on is called The Pan-Pacific Idea and the British Dominions. And really what it's trying to do is it's trying to think about a series of different conceptions of the Pacific um, that emerged in the late 19th to the mid 20th century, really, that saw the Pacific as a space that could encompass everything from the Indian subcontinent all the way across the, the vast ocean to South America. So a really vast semi-global space that was imagined and taken seriously as a almost a, a unitary, a single commercial, geopolitical, uh, almost cultural space in some regards as well. And what I'm doing is I'm researching this by looking at some of the international organisations that emerged that took the Pan-Pacific by name and by nature as their either their field of study or in terms of the invitees to their um, organisations drawn from all these different empires uh, and emergent in some regards nation states that um, today uh, are in the Pacific region. I think the term um, that we've used from the late 80s um, to the present day that best captures the space today is Asia Pacific um, and some um, scholars are today using the term Indo-Pacific as well as a, as a strategic concept uh, and that also describes the, the region actually that sort of best describes the space that I'm studying in my thesis. So when did the idea of the Pacific Ocean as a single space emerge? Because I imagine that initially it was a lot of very distant spaces that didn't have much to do with each other. Yeah, one of the challenges that I'm grappling with is the fact that from the very beginning of the European discovery in inverted commas of the Pacific, there had been a, a sense that the ocean was one single space, Pacific Ocean. Um, and you do get uh, accounts um, from the uh, 17th century onwards that talk of the Pacific or a Pacific. And so the sense that it's one defined space that you could look at, um, you, you see appearing then, but there's a real upsurge in the discourse around the Pacific as being a, a single space really from the second half of the 20th century the discovery of gold for example is a real stimulus to um, Chinese laborers moving to the gold fields in um, in Victoria and Australia and also to the west coast of the United States the vast uh, explosive settlement of individuals from the British Isles to um, Australia and New Zealand and also to the what's now the United States of America and Canada as well and that's coupled with uh, an increasing influence, I suppose, um, of European powers in, in the region. 
Um, so when we think about, and also the other thing I've actually forgotten to mention that's hugely significant as well, uh, is the emergence of Japan and the upheaval uh, in the Far East, as it was called, um, with Japan becoming um, not just a, an imperial power with possessions in uh, Korea and present-day Taiwan, but then ev eventually uh, in the first two decades of the 20th century, actually in the Pacific Islands themselves. Um, so when you add all these things up, there was this sense that there was a real dynamism and a sense that the direction of um, economic and political gravity in the world actually might well be towards the Pacific, sort of almost like a, a stage, a dramatic stage of world history might well occur in the Pacific. And when you, when you take all these different conceptualizations together, which were were really coming from not just people that were writing and speaking in the English language, but also in Chinese, Japanese, Russian, French, German. Um, the discourse speaks about the Pacific in this regard, really reaches a, a sort of fever pitch by the turn of the 20th century, and then it keeps on kind of getting louder and louder in some, in some regards um, right up until the Second World War. So it's that sense that I'm trying to capture um, and that's reflected as well in the first, um, in the historiography, in the first histories that talk about the history of the Pacific are written uh, in this period as well. So what are you going to be talking about today in this lecture? So in the first part of the lecture, I'm hoping to convey how it was that the Pacific and its thousands of islands came to be settled centuries before any European adventurers landed on its shores. In the second part uh, of the lecture, I want to try and explain some of the reasons why it was that European navigators such as Captain Cook uh, explored the Pacific in the first place and why a broader European interest in the region sustained. And in the third part of the um, lecture, I wanted to dive into uh, some case studies and to look at actually what some of those first encounters, of they, as they've been called in the region, look like and about Cook's complex, perhaps even uncomfortable legacy and why that legacy matters uh, in the region today. Great. So tell us what happened in the Pacific before the Europeans arrived. Well, this question is one of the great geographical mysteries or was for a long time of mankind. And um, over the centuries, thinkers had a whole variety of different theories as to how the Pacific Islands came to be settled. To give you a, a couple of the more curious ones, which uh, <laughs> haven't, haven't stuck um, because they're false, for example, um, the Norwegian Thor Heyerdahl in the late 1940s was convinced that the early settlers were Incas from South America. And that was a belief built almost exclusively on the fact that in Polynesia there was the sweet potato, a vegetable which is indigenous to the Americas. And he attempted to demonstrate the plausibility of that thesis through uh, what's been called the Contiki expedition. Others thought that Polynesia was settled by the ancient Greeks or seafaring Egyptians or perhaps even a lost tribe of um, wandering Jews. And uh, the New Zealander Macmillan Brown even considered the possibility that there was a lost sunken continent. And the reason for this is because the, the feats of seafaring required to settle the Pacific are really, really staggering. So it was thought impossible that Polynesian peoples might have been able to do this. Um, when Europeans hadn't been able to traverse those distances. But what the cumulative archaeological and linguistic evidence shows is that some 60,000 years ago, when early humans were exploring the limits of the continental world, they were able to traverse the narrow sea passages on what we think are possibly makeshift rafts from the South Asian landmass, which was known as Sunda, from another in the east known as Sahul. 
which today that region comprised Australia, Tasmania, and New Guinea. So generally, we're talking about the region um, that is now Indonesia and making the journey across into New Guinea, which at the time was connected to Australia. And from there, they were able to make a second hop, as it were, over the seas um, from Sahul, as it was called, to New Britain. Then about 5,000 years ago, uh, a, second, a second group of seafaring people expanded in various directions eastward from coastal China and present-day Taiwan. These have been identified linguistically as Austronesian peoples and are particularly known by a, a really distinctive type of pottery known as Lupita. And they ventured north and eastward towards Palau and the Marianas Islands. And then about 3,500 years ago, they moved into New Guinea. And from there, they began to move eastward to settle what's been called near Oceania. And then about 2,000 years ago, they then settled what's been called uh, remote or far Oceania. And this is, the Poly this is Polynesia, as we call it today. I'm going to betray my ignorance here. Could you just explain what Oceania means? Today, Oceania uh, is simply um, the island, the Pacific Islands, and that it would include the islands of Polynesia, uh, the most famous being uh, Tonga, Samoa groups, um, Micronesia in the North Pacific, and also Melanesia. These are three distinctive areas within Oceania described. But it also includes New Guinea as well, um, a, a continental landmass. So, Sean, you just talked about the migrations in the region, but how do you think it can help us rethink the idea, the whole idea of uh, an age of explorations in the Pacific space? Yeah, so the character of the way that the Pacific Islands were settled is, is actually really significant because if we think about them in the, in the sense of the time span that I've just outlined, at the time that Leif Erikson, the great Viking explorer, reached North America, Pacific peoples had settled islands right across the whole Pacific Ocean, from Easter Island, called Rapa Nui, to Aotearoa, New Zealand, all the way up to Hawaii. This, in terms of the space that we're talking about here, the Pacific is a region that you could fit all of the continental landmass of the entire Earth, and you could fit it all into the Pacific Ocean, and you'd have loads of room to spare. We're talking about a remarkable feat of navigation. And this is something, as I said, that happens at the time of the Vikings. And so when we come to talk about the age of exploration or the age of discovery, that is very much a European way of framing and thinking about their understanding and their first encounter, as it were, with the Pacific region. But we should bear in mind that there is already a highly sophisticated seafaring tradition, deep connections to the ocean and ways of knowing and ways of traversing this gigantic ocean space in the centuries prior to James Cook. So that, that's something that is very, very important to emphasize when we think about the Pacific and when we're framing this topic as being about the age of discovery or the age of exploration, to ask who was doing the discovering and what did they discover and, and what was being explored, as it were, if you see what I mean. So then when did the Europeans arrive? European exploration of the Pacific began uh, with the Spanish and Magellan uh, and the Portuguese. And their framing and the reason why they first enter, as it were, or discover the Pacific in their terms is that they were both competing for what was seen as being the riches of the East, seeking gold, but also spreading the word of God in the process. And so they were really 
inspired by two obsessions, the fastest routes to the spice-rich islands of modern-day Maluku in Indonesia. But the other thing as well that was really significant um, was that a theory abounded that somewhere in this region of the world, yet undiscovered uh, by Europeans, lay a vast southern continent, possibly also rich in gold, spices and other trade goods, but critically as well in the European imagination, a continent which could balance the continents to the, the north as well. So you start to see increased European uh, engagement and exploration uh, of the Pacific, and by the late uh, 1500s, the Spanish had colonised uh, the Philippines and discovered, again, discovered in inverted commas, several of the Caroline Islands in the North Pacific, as well as the Solomon Islands in Melanesia. By the late 1500s, what has been known, um, or what has come to be termed the first Trans-Pacific trade, or the Manila Galleons, as they were called, or Spanish Trans-Pacific trading route, has been established. And really from this point onwards, we see increased European activity, Dutch, Portuguese, and eventually also British exploration of the Pacific. Uh, for example, the first navigator, William Dampier, charted parts of uh, Western and Northern Australia. And by the 18th century, really, the British and the French were those that were dominating and sending the most scientific uh, expeditions to explore the Pacific. So really, before we start talking about James Cook and his significance, it's just key to note that the British were fairly late to the game in the sense that the Pacific had been increasingly, bit by bit, understood, as it were, um, by Spanish, Portuguese, Dutch and French before Cook made his three uh, highly significant and influential navigations in the late 18th century. So why is the name of James Cook considered so important whenever we talk about the Pacific Ocean region? One of the, one of the reasons why um, Cook's voyages are seen as being so significant is because they were evocative of what have seen to be Enlightenment or they, or they mapped onto neatly Enlightenment notions of progress and scientific endeavour in the sense that Cook's voyages um, or even ships themselves became floating laboratories carrying astronomers, artists and natural scientists as well as seamen who collected, sketched, painted, measured and recorded um, everything that they saw. And it was the vast amount um, of material. Uh, we think that Joseph Banks... Um, brought back around a thousand plant species, for example, that were previously unknown in, in Europe. So this is just one reason why the voyages were so immensely significant. Um, another factor is, is that it was the sheer scale of mapping and of what were seen to be new discoveries that were uh, made uh, that were so significant. And one factor that I really do want to bring in is the fact that there's no doubt that what Cook uh, and his crew achieved over the three voyages were uh, remarkable seats of navigation and seafaring. But these occurred also because of the ways in which Cook was able to collaborate or co-opt indigenous knowledge and, way, uh, and ways of navigating as well. And this is perhaps most, perhaps a, a way of trying to understand what that type of relationship looks like is the relationship that Cook builds with um, Tupaya, who was a remarkable Tahitian priest, as we might call him today, who essentially helped Cook to navigate and also to actually engage, for example, with um, the New Zealand Māori for the, fir for the first time. And it was that understanding of the South Pacific and indeed of the cultures of Polynesian peoples that were so significant. So much like Christopher Columbus then, Cook seems to be 
remembered as this glorified explorer figure, but actually a lot of his his ability to complete those explorations came from his uh, use of indigenous and exploitation of indigenous knowledge and power. Just like we see with Columbus, I mean, that's quite controversial in North America today. Is it similar with Cook? Cook's legacy is incredibly complex, and it really that legacy reveals some of the central tension uh, at the heart of thinking about the Pacific and indeed about identities to this very day in the region. So to some, Cook is emblematic of um, violence and, uh, and indeed of um, settler colonialism in the, in the Pacific. Um, and his name really still resonates um, across the region if you think about the, the Cook Islands, for example, named after him or Mount Cook in New Zealand. Um, there's even a crater on the moon named after Cook. Um, but for example, to someone like Haunani K. Trask, a renowned Hawaiian studies scholar and um, an activist, he's a syphilitic racist. But to conservative Australians, he's seen as being the father of the nation, the reason why Australia Day um, should exist. And these tensions um, played out very recently in the reenactment of the, um, the first time that the Endeavour, which is the ship Cook made his voyages on, reached the shores, for example, of Australia and New Zealand. A real contested moment where, as I say, you have Australian nationalists or, or figures that are rather more conservative who see this as being emblematic and highly significant for, for the nation. But then um, uh, Aboriginal Australians or, or figures in the Māori community um, seeing this has been hugely divisive and indeed um, detrimental to their, to their community. Um, so this legacy is um, highly evocative highly charged and really lives on in the, the life of communities right across the, the Pacific to this day. So if we move on to the, the third section of this lecture, I thought it maybe would be quite useful as a way of exploring the challenge that historians have of interpreting these, these events, what have been called first encounters and ultimately this larger legacy uh, that Cook leaves and indeed the mark then from, from then that, that British colonial influence leaves in the Pacific. We could look at a couple of examples of actually what these first encounters look like. And I thought we could look at the first time that Cook lands in um, Aotearoa in New Zealand. I thought we could look at his first engagement um, in Nuka Sound in present day uh, Canada. And also in Botany Bay, the first landing um, on the east coast of Australia as well. All three are incredibly complex, contested historical events, but by looking at them, it really shines a light on, as I say, the challenges that historians have in interpreting the events, but also a sense of how it is that this larger story and indeed these legacies uh, around these encounters have emerged. Sean, during your talk, you've been talking a lot about encounters in the Pacific Ocean, exploration of that space, but we've seen in previous talks that there was quite often a lot of violence involved. So what kind of words can be used to reflect when violence happened in the exploration of the Pacific Ocean? Yeah, it's a great question and a very tric tricky one really for me to answer. I suppose um, in one sense, as historians, we're, we're referring um, and speaking uh, with a language in a way that we're bequeathed or we're using or trying to tap into the way that historians in the past have talked about these types of events. And one of the words that is often um, used to talk and to think through um, the first time Cook is traveling around the Pacific is this notion of the encounter, which of course is not a neutral term. And depending on who you are, as we've talked about before, your 
uh, ultimately the, the the legacy of these encounters so-called um, uh, looks very very different but in in some sense as historians we have to use in some ways the terminology uh, that, that already exists as a way of, of engaging in the debate but at the same time yeah using it as a way of maybe sharpening and thinking through what happens and one reason I think why encounters still does have some significance with the debate about cookies precisely because the nature of these first encounters was fraught, volatile, and ran an in a whole gamut of scenarios, really, from refusals by islanders to engage with Cook when he landed, to extraordinary rituals of welcome and gift-giving, to eruptions of violence and killing. And some 45 islanders we know over the, the course of the three voyages died at the hands of Cook's uh, men, and more than a dozen of, of, of Cook's own crew died in the accounts, with, with Cook himself, of course, killed in Hawaii in 1779. Perhaps it's worth just maybe talking a little bit about maybe in a little bit more detail about why it's so tricky um, for historians really to um, talk in general about the results and what actually happens on Cook, Cook's voyages by um, just talking a little bit about the nature of those encounters in a few places. In New Zealand, for example, when Cook landed in October um, 1769 on the east side of the Turanganui um, River near present-day Gisborne, we know from the later accounts of the local Māori that they took the, the ship to be a floating island or a giant giant bird. Um, and that first encounter really, we know, got off to a disastrous start when Tomaro, the Nyati Ono Ono leader, the, the, the chief of the, of the local um, Māori, was shot and killed by one of a Cook's men. It seems from what we've been able to learn that um, the local people were undertaking a ceremonial challenge but Cook's uh, men believed themselves to be under attack. So there you have in microcosm a violent encounter based upon a misunderstanding of, of custom, of ritual and ultimately of language. And one of the interesting things though, we talked a little bit earlier about the role of Tapaya, the, the Tahitian uh, priest. He, the next time Cook landed in New Zealand, took Tapaya ashore and he was able to converse much more closely with the local, well, the, with the Māori, simply because of the affinity, not just culturally, but also of um, language as well, of Polynesian uh, peoples. And it's quite interesting, actually, that the Māori ultimately, in, in, in the legend from those events, saw, thought that Tapaya was the captain uh, of the vessel. And actually, it was the case that when Cook then returned, not just to, to New Zealand, but to other uh, Pacific places, it's interesting that, for example, in New Zealand, Tapaya was, was, the, was the person that they saw as being the authority and uh, the first interlocutor, as it, as it were. So that's an example from New Zealand. And then we have a slightly different um, first encounter, for example, at Nootka Sound off the coast of present-day uh, present Canada, where Cook was attempting to discover a northwestern passage or a northern route to the Asian markets. We, we know that to be uh, a folly, but part of that was the surveying of the coastline of, of, of North America, in, uh, including Nootka Sound. And it seems um, the latest research shows that the, the, the Moachat First Nation people of Nootka Sound, based on their encounters with uh, Spanish and, and possibly uh, Russian fur trappers in the region, had developed what we might think of as being a commercial prowess or at least an understanding of, a, of, a, of the, the way in which Europeans would think and um, commodify fur, for example. And, and actually, they were able to 
generate and increase demand and drove prices ultimately for fur and their role is incredibly significant in what emerged as quite a significant fur trade um, in that part of the world to talk about whether there were violent encounters involved no doubt violence was involved but in comparison to the example and in terms of the that first in the legacy of the first encounter it's, it's it's different but again not neutral this is clearly a very sensitive and complicated topic do you have any other examples of contested memories about those encounters? Yes, one that comes to mind um, surrounds what's been, or what's now referred to as the Gweagle Shield. This is a undecorated shield made of red mangrove that's currently held by the, the British Museum. And the, the pierced hole that you can see in the centre of the shield is almost invo evocative or, or what was interpreted for a, a long time or could be interpreted as a, as a, as a bullet hole through the centre of the shield. And really this object, even though we're, we're not absolutely, absolutely sure, in fact, most likely wasn't obtained by Cook uh, in 1770 at Botany Bay, it's become evocative of a violent first encounter between Cook and the, the Aboriginal people of what became New South Wales. Yeah, in the accounts from Cook's diaries, for example, there seems to be uh, an encounter where Gweagle warriors were shouting, waving their spears with neither side um, understanding each other. And there's a presumption that a, that, a, that a shot was fired. And this is sort of a, a first um, yeah, the first shot in what becomes the incredibly violent, um, turbulent history of the settlement, ultimately, um, um, of not just New South Wales, but ultimately uh, of Australia. Specifically, with regard to the, the shield and its contested memory, Nicholas Thomas, for example, the the anthropologist, um, was sure that the the shield, the Gweagle shield held by the British Museum, wasn't obtained in the first encounter. In fact, many similar replicas were found and brought back over decades that followed. And and in terms of the the contested memory of the of the object, this very much continues to today. For example, the anthropologist Dan Hicks refers to and engages with the the topic and the legacy of the Gweagle shield in in a forthcoming book. So. This is very much a, a contemporary issue. It lives on in our heritage dis displayed in, in Britain today. So it seems like the Europeans and British especially had a lot of influence across the Pacific during this the time period of the 1700s. And we know from the history of that, they, they end up colonizing and controlling a lot of the Pacific Islands as well. So how did the decolonization processes go? I think it's fair to say that you'd be hard-pressed to suggest that the Pacific region was decolonized. For example, in looking across the region today, the, the dizzying array of different almost colonial formations of different types of political organization really, really do still do still live on. So um, in the Pacific, they, there is a history that, that aligns with um, decolonization as, as, as many historians would know it, the sort of more traditional flag imperialism or, or flag pulling up and pulling down where you have um, nations gaining independence uh, in the 1960s, 1962 Western Samoa, for example. Uh, but the Pacific is very much still a, an imperial space. New Caledonia held a referendum on, as to whether it would cede from from France in 2018, um, Hawaii still has a has a notable sovereignty movement. Pitcairn Island, which is home to the descendants of the the bounties, a current overseas territory of Britain, 
Tokelau uh, remains what's called a dependent territory of, of New Zealand. And then there are more tricky, almost neo-colonial style relationships as well. Like Australia, for example, um, has since the early 2000s uh, detained and processed uh, migrants and asylum seekers on, on, on Nauru, where it previously mined phosphate in the previous century. So um, it's certainly the case that um, the Pacific is decolonizing, poses real challenges when we're comparing the situation, the contemporary situation almost in the Pacific compared to um, other places in the world where there's a sense that decolonization as a political process might have ended. Now, obviously, we've extended or that our understanding of decolonization encompasses not just the notion of political process. It's also encourages us to think about practice as well. So it's a little bit more fuzzy, I suppose, but in terms of thinking about decolonization in that, in the, in the way that historians have done for a long time as being a political process, it's very much a live issue in, in the Pacific still. Thank you so much, Sean, for this very thorough and brief introduction to the complicated history of the Pacific Ocean. As a reminder, Sean Phillips is a doctoral student in global and imperial history at the University of Oxford, who works extensively on the Pacific Ocean space in the 20th century. This was also the last topic in our first module on the age of exploration, so stay tuned for our second module titled A New Imperialism. Thank you so much for having me on, it's been a real, real pleasure. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, uh, Sean has compiled a reading list, which will be available on our website at www.uncomfortableoxford.com. There will also be a full transcript for anyone who's interested. A reminder that this podcast will be released every two weeks until the summer of 2020 as we go through our lecture series. This podcast is supported by the Torch Network for Humanities at the University of Oxford and run by Uncomfortable Oxford, the student-led social enterprise. You can learn more about us also on our website. If you enjoyed this podcast, please send us a shout out on Twitter at UnOxProject. You can also find us at UncomfortableOxford on Facebook and Instagram. And the music you've been hearing is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz. See you next time. <laughs>